Simple Beep, Episode 60. Everything old is new again. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And as we record this, it's probably the biggest week in the Mac community of the year. It is WWDC, which in 2017 is certainly the biggest community event of the year. Not just the conference itself for developers, but also all of the surrounding stuff that's going on in the Bay Area this year in San Jose, which is new. Um, And we always like to do something around WWDC Uh, Last year, we talked about the history of the event itself, so we've covered that, and we'll link that up in the show notes if you want to go back to that episode. And last year, we also talked about a whole bunch of stuff that like disappeared, classic stuff that was disappearing as of WWDC. And this year, it's a little bit of the opposite. But before we get into it, of course, we have follow-up to clear out. First thing that I want to say is hello to anyone who may be a new listener to the podcast, I was on Mac Power Users this past week, and I was talking about non-classic things. I was talking about regular expressions and how I use them in my day job, and it was a fun time that I had with uh, chatting with David and Katie at Mac Power Users. So if uh, if you found your way over to Simple Beep via them, welcome, and we hope you enjoy it. And if you're not familiar with the format of our show, we do topic-based shows every couple of weeks. And now we're up to, wow, episode 60. So we have a lot of topics that we've covered in the past. And this is uh, the reason behind our ever-growing follow-up section. On other podcasts, they tend to do follow-up on the past, you know, one, maybe two, three episodes. But when we see things that are part of topics that we've covered in the past, they just kind of go right into the follow-up section at the top of our outline. So uh, we've got a few points to uh, to cover in order here. Yes, uh, to that point. We did an episode a couple of episodes back about a collection of classic Mac games available to emulate right in your browser at the Internet Archive. And uh, if you checked it out at the time that we released that episode, you should go back and check it out again because there continues to be a lot of new stuff added to it. A whole bunch of HyperCard stat collections, uh, a pretty comprehensive collection of Infocom's text adventure games, which includes the popular Zork series. And uh, some of the stuff that we even talked about in that episode as being available elsewhere, but not readily available at the Internet Archive, is now there. This includes Cosmic Osmo, Glider, Glypha, and uh, one of the most popular world builder games, Enchanted Scepters. There's also a more comprehensive collection of the Ambrosia Times, which we found in one of the the like broad-ranging collections at that time. So lots of stuff there now as we record today and probably will continue to be added well into the future. I haven't checked this out in a while and there's lots of stuff that I recognize. There's an early version of Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing. Um, There's uh, Rogue, the original, which uh, I have not ever spent a whole lot of time with. So yeah, definitely uh, I'll be revisiting that page and playing some new games, some new old games. (laughs) Last episode, we talked about Mac museums all around the world, and we have some follow-up related to that. One of our past guests on the show, Jake Bordens, said that he happened to just be in Prague right after that episode, and he stopped by the Apple Museum there, and he sent us a picture. He, he, He was on our show talking about the Newton community, and he sent us a picture of the case with several Newtons in the Apple Museum Prague. So it's very cool that people are actually going out and seeing these exhibits at 
those museums that we talked about. Uh, and actually, I think this is just today as we're recording. We mentioned it's WWDC week. A lot of people are in the Bay Area. And one of the museums that is in that area is the Computer History Museum. And friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, and his co-host from Relay FM, Federico Vitici, were at the Computer History Museum. And they also saw some Newtons. So we'll put all those <laughs> and many other things. And so we'll put links to that in the show notes for this week. Another museum we talked about in that episode was the Living Computers Museum in Seattle. And it was of particular note because they had a couple Apple One machines. Uh, one of them was noteworthy because it was Steve Jobs' personal customized Apple One. The, another was notable because it was working and museum visitors can actually get up and use it. In similar functioning Apple One news, there was an auction recently for another functioning Apple One unit. And uh, it did sell. It sold at, sold at 130000 but uh, that was less than what they expected. I think like almost like a third of what they thought it would go for. It's way, way out of my price range. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's still a lot of money. There's an article at 9to5Mac about the auction, which uh, covers a couple things. Like not only was this uh, bid price less than was expected for this particular machine, but previous auctions for other similar machines have also gone higher. Uh, <laughs> the final paragraph says that this may be because there was a spike in interest in Apple Ones around the death of Steve Jobs that must be on the wane right now. But for whatever reason, another functioning Apple One has found a new home. And uh, there's another figure in this article that says there's, it's believed that there are only eight total functioning Apple Ones in existence right now. Wow, that's eight out of 200. But I guess that's, you know, that's what happens when the design of your computer is a completely like open case or lack lack of a case. Uh, it's a it's a fragile system. And so even some of the best preserved ones aren't in fully working order. And one last piece of follow up going back to our episode 55. Speaking of some rare Macs, we this just came across today. And in that episode, we talked about some Apple prototypes. And we also talked about some kind of fictional Apple prototypes, like the ones that were created for Macworld magazine that were basically, it was a collaboration with Frog Design and they weren't actually ever produced. And there were some similar kind of prototypes that were actually first party out of Apple and were spearheaded by Johnny Ive in his time there. And one of them is called the Pomona prototype. So apparently there were two prototypes, Pomona and Spartacus. And Spartacus was the design that eventually, after some time, evolved into the 20th anniversary Macintosh. And the Pomona prototype is another flat screen desktop that had these like curved wooden speakers. It's really beautiful looking. And there's a there's a post that just went up recently by Jeff Rule, who took it upon himself to actually recreate one of these. So this is not an original prototype. Presumably, none of those exist anymore. But he had seen a photo of this in a uh, 1994 issue of Mac User. And I guess he's a crafty guy and a big Mac fan. And he went through and actually made one of these. Like the screen is borrowed from an iPad display, and it will run the 
current or it will run the contemporaneous, you know, 1994 OS in emulation. It's a very cool write up and really interesting photos. Like this is, this is just such a, a cool project that he was able to put together. Yeah. When I saw the photos of it, the first thing I thought was, wow, that screen looks good <laughs> to be a, oh. <laughs> a, screen, a screen on something from uh, like the mid nineties that was, you know, resurrected and been in a bin or something. So it makes a lot of sense that it is running modern hardware in a, a recreation of the case. Yeah, he also has some photos from the back where like the the CPU unit kind of sticks out the back, not like a perfect Johnny Ive thin iMac design, but on the other hand, um probably still far sleeker than you actually could have accomplished in 1994. And I joked on on Twitter on our account today that, that given the date that this is kind of like the 18th anniversary Macintosh. <laughs> So I think that does it for follow-up. Let's get up to the present day before we rewind once again. So it's WWDC week. We got a ton, a ton of announcements. I was like, I was just, you know, watching from the comfort of home and I was like exhausted by the end of the keynote. It was at a breakneck pace. We got all kinds of announcements for the Mac, for the iPad, and of course for Apple's operating systems. And some of them were things that immediately made us think of features that have existed on the Mac or on other platforms. And then there were some of them that it took us a minute to realize exactly what was going on. And one of the first things that was announced that was kind of a major announcement is the new version of macOS, which following on Sierra, this edition of macOS is called High Sierra. And I was right there with a lot of other people who thought that this was Craig setting up like a dad joke, and then that wasn't actually going to be the name. Uh, but it totally is. And a lot of people are saying, oh, I'm going to have a lot of getting used to calling something on my computer, Hi Sierra. This is such a weird name. And I didn't think much of it. You know, I'm kind of neutral on it. I'm sure I'll get used to it. I mean, heck, we got used to Mavericks. Which is like a singular place name with the S on the end, which is very confusing. But I, I thought, okay, that's fine. And then the next morning, I thought, wait a minute, that name is familiar. And if you listened to ATP, their live show this week, same thing happened. I, I hadn't, I didn't listen to the show live. I listened to it later as uh, the recorded version after I had made this realization that wait, there was something in the classic Max history that was called High Sierra, and it's the High Sierra file format. And during ATP, Syracuse mentions this, and they were doing a live show with a room full of hundreds of people, and it sounded like nobody in the room knew what he was talking about. So I figured uh, I, I could give a little explanation here, perhaps. So this goes all the way back to like the very early origins of CD-ROMs, and basically optical media in general. So there were CDs were created in the early 80s and were starting to be used for music at that time, but there wasn't really a good data solution for, or like a data standard for CD-ROMs. And the market was starting to fragment and a group of industry leaders got together and said, look, it looks like optical optical media is going to be a thing, uh, a going concern, and we should have, even if 
there's different support needed for different operating systems, we should at least come to some kind of agreement of you know where the bits are going to be on the disk, where where the file system is actually going to lay. And so this consortium of tech companies that included Apple and other big players like Hitachi, Microsoft, 3M, Philips, Sony, all people who were involved in both music CDs and then later in data CDs, got together. And the place that they arranged this meeting in the mid-80s was the High Sierra Hotel and Casino in Tahoe. And they had this, you know, basically like, you know, industry standards board meeting. And they put together a draft proposal that was called uh, the High Sierra Group Proposal. And it kind of languished for a while, but eventually a variant of it got picked up and adapted as the ISO 9660 standard. And so if you've ever heard someone, I think even more in the Windows world now, which is kind of ironic, although Microsoft was there. Um, if you've ever heard someone refer to a disk image of a CD as an ISO, or you've gotten a .iso file, this all comes from the fact that there was event- eventually codified an ISO standard for CDs. It's kind of silly then that that got picked up and moved over to what the, the file name was called, because the ISO does everything. They standardize like business processes and CDs and, you know, Firewire is an ISO, sta- like every, all of these different things are ISO standards. So it's kind of silly that it got picked up that way. But that is what happened. And uh, the High Sierra format itself, like that, that earlier version, was not really supported, uh, at least not natively. Whereas ISO 9660 became the industry standard and was, you know, anytime that you put a data CD into a Mac or a PC or pretty much any computer, in the 90s, it was reading disks of that ISO format. And when you found this all out, I think you did you go into an emulator and pull up the system extension that added High Sierra file access, uh, like readability to the Mac? Right. So this is this is the only way that this name was actually in the back of my mind was that I had seen something in the extensions folder about High Sierra and. I went, wait a minute, I've seen something on a classic Mac sitting in the system folder that had the name High Sierra. And so what happened was, yeah, this was a unsupported format, at least natively, but Apple shipped this extension called High Sierra File Access, which was weighs in at a whopping 20K, so it must not be um, all that much code. But so there was this sort of backwards compatibility that was added on via an extension later on in case you did somehow wind up with a disk that was actually formatted in the High Sierra format. Um, of course, this ties in <laughs> a little bit jokingly, but I thought that this tied in nicely also with the fact that a major new feature of the High Sierra Mac OS 10.13 is a new file system which is going to be APFS by default. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that uh, all of that comes back around. Uh, it would be super confusing if they had named the actual file system, the High Sierra file system. Um, it's confusing enough as it is that it's called the Apple file system, which is abbreviated APFS. The P just kind of sneaks up out of nowhere. Well, when I, I saw that screenshot, I remembered this 
class of system extensions. I, the, the high Sierra name had not rung a bell with me. Um, but in the screenshot, certainly it says it's, it's a part of Mac OS nine at whatever version, uh, you took the screenshot of. Yeah, that's my, um, sheep shaver setup, which is just 9.0. I, I think it was there from, from earlier on, but that was what I had quick access to. And that's what I was trying to figure out because I do remember seeing that, like, again, like that suite of uh, system extensions for different, you know, uh, rare file systems. And I wanted to say, like, maybe it did arrive or maybe my awareness of it at least only started around like 8.5, 8.6 or 9. Right. And I, I just fired up my emulator here as as we were talking. And one of the things about this is that it has a bit of a unique icon. It's not just a generic extension icon. It's got this like blue cross almost that that's on the icon. And also it's a little weird. It's like a little double extension icon. There's like the extension and then the 32 the bit icon. And then in the corner, there's like a 12 by 12 extension icon. Not sure what that's supposed to represent. I think the X is supposed to, you know, talk, be talking about like sort of cross platform file sharing. Cause I'm just running through what I've got here. There's UDF volume access. There is an ISO 9660 access. Um, and a couple other things that are for like four other file systems that all shared that same kind of icon with high Sierra file access. DVD region manager also has that. So it's like all things to do audio CD access all had these, this was a you know, shared class of extensions, but one of them was the high Sierra. So maybe it's optical media, not just uh writing optical media, but reading it as well. Once that became kind of a standard at the same time as the you know, later Mac OS, classic Mac OS, then we started seeing these extensions bundled by default. So that's just a little thing. That's just a little happy uh, naming coincidence. But we did see a lot of things, uh, particularly in iOS, that were actually system features that made us think, aha, uh, iOS is gaining things that the classic Mac has had, you know, pe- people talk about, oh, you can't get par- productivity done on an, on an iPad, that kind of thing, right? Because like, it's not like a Mac. And what they mean is like current Macs, Mac OS, you know, current Mac OS. Um, I, I almost said Mac OS 10, but you know, <laughs> yes, like the, the Mac OS 10 generation, which has been going on for 15 years now, they mean that, but there are so many features that have come over from the classic Mac or from sort of just general desktop computing. I mean, think back to when the iPhone got cut and paste and it was like a huge breakthrough. And so that's still going on. And there was a big one of those this year for iOS. Yeah. This big one that we want to talk about first is the ability to drag and drop. And, you know, at its face value, that can mean a whole bunch of things. So first let's go through the kind of evolution of drag and drop with the classic Mac. It was part of the great visual user interface that set the Mac apart at its introduction. Not only can you have like the the desktop metaphor with folders and files, but in using this new mouse, you can manipulate these by, you know, visually moving them around the screen, dragging and dropping. But uh, at the original Mac's introduction, this wasn't as universal a paradigm as uh, it would come to be. The original Macintosh basically used drag and drop to move or copy 
files between like different folders on the same disk or probably more often between uh, one disk to another. Right. And I've seen some things that I'm not sure if this is a retcon of the terminology or if it was a distinction that they made from the beginning, which is that that original paradigm of, ah, you have icons on the desktop and you can move them from place to place. That was more called like click and drag rather than drag and drop because I, I, I don't know exactly why they thought that the metaphor was a little bit different there. And of course, there were other dragging actions on the system like selecting text and those sorts of things. Of course, the story of the original Macintosh um, and its user interface is tied with Xerox Park. Like it's uh, known that Steve Jobs toured Xerox Park and saw a bunch of models there and, you know, was inspired, certainly. Uh, maybe if you're on another side of, <laughs> of the story, you think uh, some things were blatantly copied. So uh, where did drag and drop come from? There's a thread on Quora that uh, kind of lays down that uh, drag and drop did originate with the Mac, the Macintosh operating system, the Macintosh hardware. Uh, Jeff Raskin in one of the answers is credited as kind of coming up with the concept. And then Bill Atkinson, who kind of had his hand in everything, uh, implemented it. And, you know, Quora is user submitted stuff and you can see who writing the answer, like what their pedigree is. So if that's not enough, folklore.org, which I consider gospel for <laughs> classic Mac stories. Absolutely. Everything on that site is 100% true and not in the Wikipedia sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, they also say that while a lot of ideas did come from uh, Steve Jobs' visit to Park, drag and drop file manipulation came from the Mac group. And that is at a folklore.org story titled on Xerox, Apple, and Progress. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, one interesting thing is that like Park did have some things that were close to it and it's described as click, move, click because there is a dedicated key on their keyboards, the move key. And so the way that you might drag and drop a file on the Macintosh from the internal hard disk to a floppy would be to actually drag the file to a window on the other volume and release on the, on Xerox parks machines, you would select the file by clicking it, actually hit the move key on your keyboard, and then click the destination where you wanted the file to go. Drag and drop is a lot catchier than click, move, click, and also sounds a lot more functional. Absolutely. But you can see where the idea might have had its roots. And one of the things with drag and drop is that, kind of, kind of as we're getting at here, once you have a mouse-based pointing device... You have this, like, it just comes for free, the fact that you can click and drag, right? You have two operations that you can do with the mouse. You can move and you can hold down the button. And there's nothing that says that you can't do both at once. And it makes total natural sense that doing both at once is some novel action that's, you know, more than the sum of its parts, right? So the question then is, like, what can you do with that dragging action? And... It's, you know, there have been many hurdles that have been overcome in the history of GUI computing in general, but often pioneered either by the Mac or by the team over at Next operating kind of in parallel, that what can we do with an object that is being dragged around? So even from, you know, from the very beginning of the 
Mac system software, you had the ability to move an icon from place to place, whether that's within a window, across windows, across disks even. But there were limitations there. So in early versions of macOS, well, actually quite a lot of the classic era, if you dragged and dropped an icon while you were performing the drag, all you got was a little gray outline of the icon. You didn't actually physically pick it up and see the whole thing move. You didn't even get sort of a ghost trailing you. You only got that outline. And of course, that's like a system limitation of like what you can do with the draw buffer, basically. And as we got into the System 7 era, things got a little bit more of that abstraction, that limitation moved away a little bit because you were able to get in later versions of System 7, you could actually see, or maybe it was only in Mac OS 8, that you could actually, when you, when you drag and drop an icon, the whole icon moves, or at least like a translucent version of that icon moves. I remember in maybe like late System 7, having some sort of like system extension hack that would actually do like gravity effects yeah. on icons as you as you drag them what was that called i, I want to say we might have covered it in like a utilities episode maybe it came out of like a the mac hack or, or something the icon would like droop with gravity based even on where your cursor was when you clicked to pick it up so it was like it was very smart and very cool Right, but that was really pushing the limits of what you could do <laughs> with drag and drop. And of course, even dragging windows around uh, for a long time, well, basically for the entire history of the classic Mac OS, was not a live operation. You got outlines, and then the window would snap into place. It was kind of a breakthrough with OS X and the quartz-based rendering engine that you were actually getting windows moving around live as you dragged and dropped them. So if you can't actually like see what you're dragging and dropping, that places some limitations on what you want the user to be able to do <laughs> with the things that are being dragged and dropped. Um, one of the first things that was an advancement in drag and drop on the Mac was saying, okay, users, you've, you've had this drag and drop thing for a long time for moving files around. We're going to Move, give you another capability there, which was in System 7, the capability of opening a file in a particular application by dragging it onto the application was added. This did sometimes land you in a place of kind of a double abstraction and really having to know what you were doing. Because if you recall, in System 7, if you opened an application, the way that it the system indicated to you that the application was open was that it would take the outline of the icon and fill it in with this kind of like blue shaded pattern. So you would see the name, but then the icon for the application would be largely obscured by this status indication that the application was open. So if you were dragging a file onto an already open application, by the time you got it over there, you would have an outline with no name going onto a blanked out icon with the name. So you really had to know, know and understand what you were doing. But it was also, I mean, it was also an important piece of functionality and acknowledging that you might have more than one destination application that you would want to open a particular file in. Because before that, everything was based on type and creator code. And so 
if you wanted to open a text file in bbedit instead of simple text, then either you could drag and drop it in the System 7 era, or before that, you would have to say, no, no, associate this file and its creator code with bbedit. And that might involve a trip to resedit and all kinds of other complicated things. Or, of course, you could go into the application and choose open, go through an open dialog box. But directly from the finder, there was no way to do that until the advent of what was, you know, considered a more true drag and drop in System 7. But what we think of now for drag and drop, I mean, yeah, sure, you can drag and drop icons around. And now we think of, oh, if you want to open something in a particular application, maybe it's in your dock and it's a convenient way to, you know, drag and drop onto an icon. You're not going to go digging into the applications folder probably to open something in a particular application, especially in OS 10, you've got the, you know, contextual menu with open in. But what we think of and probably what we do more with drag and drop in the present era is dragging and dropping content. And this was a feature that you know did not exist for a large portion of the classic Mac because it was introduced in system 7.5. And this was when, I, I mean, I remember this being touted as a headlining feature of system 7.5 was this true drag and drop. So what this meant was that up before system 7.5, if you had selected some piece of content text, for example. That was it. Like you could you could cut or copy that text, but there was no manipulation that you could do with the mouse, not even within a single document. You couldn't take one paragraph and drag it down below another one. That was what cut and paste were for. But this addition of the drag and drop paradigm allowed for drag and drop of all of these different types of content. So images and text and sounds to some extent. And these were backed up with a system framework, which was the clipping system. So you could drag and drop text between windows, even between applications that supported it. Or if you were going from one application to, and you wanted to save some piece of content for later, you could drag it to the desktop or any finder window, and it would create a text clipping or an image clipping. And these were like I guess the metaphor was based off of the scrapbook that was in the classic Mac, that those things were like clippings that were bound up in a book, but now you could just sort of tear those off and put them anywhere. And this was convenient, um, and it still sort of exists in OS X. The clipping support is, like, really bad. Um, the, the, the formats still exist. You could try it now, you know, select some text, drag it to your desktop, you'll get a text clipping. What can you do with that? Not a whole lot. Like you can open it up and copy the contents out, but it's not supposed to be a document that you can edit. But unfortunately, like it doesn't even have like good quick look support, which would be like the useful thing to do with it. Like throw it on the desktop and then like, oh, I can just hit space and view it later. Not really super useful. So for me personally, this has been obviated by things like clipboard managers, but um, it was a major piece of getting information from place to place on the classic Mac. So what did we get here at WWDC? I think the, the, like the headline piece of drag and drop, especially on iPads is more of this content dragging and dropping. You can take a photo from the right split screen and drag it into your email message that you're composing on the left side of your split screen. 
and they have some fun multi-touch things where you can, you know, start dragging one photo, but kind of like flick in other photos into your dragging collection. Um, which made me think as you were talking about, like, what are the limitations of the mouse as a pointing device? You can click or you can drag, click and hold down to initiate a drag and you can move with multi-touch, especially on the iPad that doesn't have uh, the 3d touch or the force touch, the, what defines like a long enough press to initiate a drag versus a long press to initiate the like contextual pop over. Um, and then once you get to the limited drag and drop that they're going to introduce on the iPhone and iPhones that have 3d touch, there's like the, the pressure difference between like resting your finger there to initiate a drag or resting your finger to initiate the long press versus, you know, leaving your finger there and pushing a little more to do a push or a pop. I think we're starting to muddy the, the multi-touch kind of uh, manipulation metaphor in the way that dragging and dropping with a mouse and at that, a single button mouse always kind of remained crisp and clean. Right. It really is still that just that combination of two actions. But yeah, as you were saying, the the thing that iOS is getting is more that like full on content drag and drop. And of course, some of those earlier paradigms, like the click and drag of moving icons around. Well, you know, there's the limit. It's a limited snap to grid thing like in Springboard. But of course, that was there from from iPhone OS 1.0. You go into wiggle mode to move your icons around and the the manner in which you move them around is a drag and drop, essentially. I mean, if if you think of it in terms of the physical action, uh, it's more like a swipe. But we think of swipes as kind of being like open-ended gestures. Like, you know, if you swipe in a direction, you don't care exactly where your finger ends. So, uh, you know, the, the touchscreen version of a drag and drop where you press point at something, press down, move, and release is the same thing where you put your finger down, move it to another space, part of the screen, and release in a particular place. And that's what the iPad has gained. And the iPhone 2 does, to a certain extent. Yeah. So iPad drag and drop is something that seemed totally obvious for the past couple of years since split screen has been a thing. People have been clamoring for it. But there's another feature that the iPad got that Nobody was expecting, at least not in this form, that has roots way back, not to the classic Mac, but to Next Step. Right. And these features, I don't know if there's like a, an umbrella marketing term for them, but basically the dock, which has existed in iPhone OS, iOS, iOS for the iPad since the beginning, is now more of the dock you're used to on the Mac OS on the iPad. And uh, also, we've had multitasking on the iPad for one or two major revisions of iOS where you can uh, have like varying split screens of kind of like iPad mini or iPhone sized apps running side by side. But now the multitasking is getting stronger where it's not only the, the two panes, you can also throw in a picture in picture. You can have a floating third instance of an app. Uh, I think there's a tweet from Steve Troughton Smith, who's doing his usual digging through this. And I think on the new iPad hardware, it can support these like two apps in split view, one app floating, and finally a fourth uh, video media app playing in picture in picture. So that's new. 
but also these uh, these bundles of windows kind of operate as spaces from the Mac, which again, you can kind of, everything's all tied together in all these paradigms. You can kind of switch between or initiate from uh, swipes or drags, if you will, from the dock. And a lot of these these pieces of it, the the dock, the different groupings of multiple windows at the same time, uh, called next step to a bunch of people's memories, including friend of the show, Stephen Hackett. So we went back and looked at uh, some screenshots and some write-ups of the next step OS, because I don't think either of us had any uh, hands-on experience with the next step OS. But it's clear that uh, not only has Next Step through its uh, Apple's acquisition of Next and it became the the kind of the underpinnings of macOS, uh, but like the paradigms there, the user interface and user experience paradigms have continued through and are now present on the iPad. So these things of like the dock that was in Next Step, uh, really robust multi-window multitasking that was in Next Step. And another... Um, user interface thing that didn't make it into iOS 11, but was predicted for iOS 11 by Federico Vitici at his Mac Stories, huge, wonderful iOS 11 concept video. Because maybe the only thing they didn't get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was pretty spot on, was the idea of a shelf. So not a dock where you have shortcuts to launch applications, but kind of a holding area for all kinds of things. It could be a shortcut to an application. It could be a bit of content, not unlike the clippings we were just talking about. That was present in the Next Step OS. It was uh, something Federico outlined in his concept video, but it is not, alas, something that is actually going to be released with iOS 11. Even so, I'm really quite surprised by the extent to which the next step and now what we know as the OS 10 macOS dock made its way over to the iPad. Because in iOS, we've had something called a dock for forever, as as long as iOS has existed. And I, I think that it took me even years uh, of using iOS, iPhone OS and iOS to realize what kind of capabilities it had. I remember that I was probably on my second iPhone when I realized that you could actually move things in and out of the dock. I thought that those four icons, because they were like the core stock apps of the phone, I thought that they were fixed there. And then that you could have like a three icon dock, which some people swear by and others think is blasphemy. <laughs> um, and also the fact that you could put folders in the iOS dock, just like you can put a folder in the macOS dock, those were all things that existed, even though these two things with separate names, I mean, the, the only similarity between them is that they are persistent rows of icons on that exist on your screen. Like that's the, the similarity ends there. But the new iOS iPad dock is so much more similar to the macOS dock. The ability to add lots and lots of things into the dock, the actions that happen on specifically on items that are in the dock, where like if you on iOS push and hold 
um, or on macOS. And I think going back to Next, uh, if you click on and hold on an icon, you get like recent files for that application. That kind of thing is now all in there. And you can just, and you can cram in not just four, not just six, which was the previous maximum on the iPad. You can cram like 12 icons down in there. You can still only put 20 icons up in Springboard, even if you have a 13 inch iPad Pro, which is absurd looking, but you can just like wedge a whole bunch of icons into the dock. So that piece of uh, customizable and multi-purpose user interface that goes back all the way to, you know, 86, 87 with Next Step is now going to come to many, many iPads around the world. Another thing coming to many, many iPads as part of Another big upgrade to the Notes app in uh, iOS this year is handwriting recognition. And as we record this, there's a footnote on Apple's marketing page for iOS 11 that says, I think just right now, English and Chinese will be uh, recognized by the system software. But this is another thing that has roots in earlier Apple hardware and software. And I think most notably in the Newton well, it's certainly the most similar. I mean, with the Newton, you're writing with stylus. It was shipped with the system. And the I, I don't know if the handwriting recognition will work if you just kind of fat finger on your iPad screen. But in the demos that were on stage, certainly it's intended to go with the Apple Pencil. And of course, for a while, the Newton's handwriting recognition was famously not great. We went over a bunch of the kind of like pop culture references to this in our Newton episodes. Man, how great would it have been if like in one of, because they had, you know, the mocked up notes for the demos in, in the keynote. How great would it have been if there was, you know, even just the name Martha yeah. anywhere in one of those notes would have been such a great nod, but uh, I don't think it was in there. But I think we all expect this to kind of come out of the gate being very good, especially for the precision that the the pencil gives you. Right. And of course, you know, it's all backed by machine learning, <laughs> convolutional, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, you know, the, the technology is 20 years beyond what the Newton could do on device. And so, yeah, we have high expectations for it. One thing that I wanted to point out, though, is that it wasn't like Apple tried handwriting recognition with the Newton because it was a touchscreen device, well, stylus, you know, uh, resistive touchscreen device. And then the Newton got canceled and they put that away and never tried it again. There has been since OS 10 10.2 Jaguar, some native quote native support for handwriting recognition on the Mac. I remember that this got a lot of stage time in keynotes when it was a brand new feature and it was originally called Inkwell and then later shortened to just ink and eventually its icon got stolen and became the icon for pages. And then that went away, and now there's something that looks more like a page for pages. Uh, but, of course, even though that this was like a native-level support for handwriting recognition in the OS, on a Mac, there was no hardware for digitizing handwriting. So it was all dependent on third-party stylus and tablet devices, like uh, drawing tablets, like uh, Wacom or something like that. Um, you could maybe like kind of fake it with a trackpad, but it was not good or reliable to any extent. And 
I think that that feature was largely unused. I'm not even sure if it's still hanging on in uh, on the side of a cliff in the High Sierra, <laughs> um, but <laughs> but it it was one more attempt at handwriting recognition. I think on the iPad it will be far more successful. It was definitely a technology like part of the operating system, but there was also the its own preference pane. But I think, like you said, it wouldn't show up unless you had some external, uh, you know, stylus supported hardware plugged in. Um, but like you said, faking it with the touchpad, I forget when this was added, let alone marketed, but preview.app at one point got that thing where like you could sign PDFs by fat fingering your signature on the touchpad. You could also like sign a blank piece of paper and hold it up to the eyesight slash FaceTime camera. And I wonder if any of that was using the Inkwell technology or if it was just, you know, it doesn't need to OCR your name. It's just a a curve. Yeah. Actually, uh, looking into this here, this this is kind of scary. Um, when it was launched in 10.2, the Inkwell technology, the actual uh, recognition engine was the same as Rosetta the recognition engine that was on the, I guess that's the second generation one on the Newton. So the actual mechanism, the software behind Inkwell actually, it was Newton software that had essentially been ported over to the Mac. Whereas what we're getting now is as far as I know, all brand new, probably all written in Swift. It's language that can do it all. There were also a couple of things that were shown on stage, but because the keynote was so jam-packed, didn't even get mentioned. And one of these was the, well, it's sort of got a mention, but not its full feature set, was the new control center in iOS. Yeah, the control center has gone through a bunch of design iterations where uh, like it used to be all one solid pane, and now we've kind of got like a pane with... Uh, little discrete controls on it to a couple of panes that you had to swipe between. And now it's all coming back into one pane and like areas of control or even some individual controls are segmented out in uh, little rounded rectangles or circles. So this design of a control center that is only one window, one pane that has little areas segmented off from each other that are all kind of tetris in, into one piece uh, reminded a lot of people of something very similar on the classic Mac. That also shares a similar name, which is the original control panel on the Mac system software one, which had several different panes for many of the same features. Like on the Mac, that was things like volume, date and time, menu blinking, the keyboard and mouse uh, tracking speed and repeat speed. And on iOS, things, well, one of those is shared. It's the volume control. And then things like brightness, Wi-Fi, uh, currently playing music. And what we saw in the keynote was we thought, oh, well, that's you know what we're used to in Control Center, and that's it. But it turns out that there's this whole host of uh, configurable little buttons and widgets and panels that can go into your control center. I have no idea how you actually wind up arranging them. I haven't seen that in action, uh, as opposed to the original control center or original control panel where all those things were 
laid out neatly for you. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Of course, on the Mac, the control panel evolved into uh, after it outgrew a single one at a glance window, it had a scrolling list on the side of the different control panels that would then load their own interface into the main window. And then eventually in System 7 and beyond in the classic Mac, control panels became their own kind of mini applications that all lived in the control panels folder. They were this hybrid where they would launch like an application, but they also loaded code into the operating system like an extension at startup. And it'll be interesting to see where iOS takes this. Of course, the the way that they went in iOS 10 of splitting things out into separate panels, that's going away now. So who knows where that equilibrium will land for iOS. I think one thing that this indicates is that maybe Apple recognizes that the settings app in iOS is just like a junk drawer at the moment. And so there needs to be a quicker way, a more user-friendly, a more iconic way uh, to get at these controls, just as they were presented uh, in the original Mac. You didn't have to go in and edit some config file. You didn't have to search through a bunch of settings. There was the control panel for the things you needed most. And I think a lot of people have used the example of the original Mac's control panel as like really good, efficient design because it packs them all in, but they're all they're all recognizable about what they will do. And there's almost no words, no like English letters on there that would have to be translated for systems use in other countries. No, oh, there's, there's numbers only. So there's n- numbers on the volume control, numbers for the dates, numbers for blinking and that sort of thing. Uh, even like the double click speed doesn't have a number. They're not settings one, two, three. They have arrows that are like far apart, middle apart close to each other, like iconically representing what it is. And in the demo at WWDC, Craig Federighi, who was showing it, touted this, that like with the, um, you know, with the volume and brightness sliders, they are sliders that are these, it's just like a one by two of the grid of the control center. You can manipulate it directly there, or you can like blow it up to the entire screen, but it still has the same effect of just being totally visual. You you know that that's the brightness slider because it's got a little light bulb on it. You know that that's the little volume slider because it's got a speaker on it. And all the other things are iconic as well, um, like timers and alarms. And some of the things are abstract, like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth that have gained their own logos. But I think the expectation is that people will recognize them. And if they don't recognize them, they'll play with them and it'll become immediately obvious what they do. So that's a bunch of kind of system level things that were present in the early days of the Mac and are now uh, kind of reappearing in iOS. We want to close this episode, not with system level stuff, but with a couple pieces of hardware. And we got a lot of hardware at WWDC, especially for a WWDC. But uh, some of the things that were notable in peripherals were on the input devices. So I have one of these in the mail. It is coming tomorrow. I am super excited. Uh, This was not mentioned on stage, but showed up quietly in the store. The Magic Keyboard has an extended version with full arrow keys and a numpad and page up and page down. And 
you can probably tell that I'm like bouncing in my <laughs> chair right now. So um, we did a whole show on keyboards. You can go back to it. Episode six. Uh, I'm not a super huge keyboard nerd, but I know what I like in a keyboard. I have two keyboards in this room that I'm sitting in right now recording. There's an Apple extended keyboard too, and there's a magic keyboard. And I think that they're both like really good in their own way. Um, as like the switches on the Apple Extended Keyboard 2 are, they're those Alps switches and they're fantastic, but the keyboard as a whole feels like big and chunky and a little bit anachronistic. Like I've used it with a modern Mac and it's fine, but it does feel a little bit off. Um, one of the things like, you know, the little dots that they have on the keyboard to indicate where your fingers are on the, on the early Apple keyboards, they were under your middle fingers instead of under your pointer fingers. So I'll get off sometimes on using that block saying keyboard. Um, but the, the modern key, the magic keyboard, I really love the switches on it. I think that the, um, I did an episode of Pico Mac, like one of the very first ones is like, I'm a convert on the magic keyboard, the slim design, like I know is good for preventing RSI for me. Uh, but I do miss all of those extended keyboard features that only came to the Mac with the Apple Extended Keyboard 1 in 1987. So this is actually, you know, about a three, three year window. This is about the same for the Magic Keyboard to final, finally get these things. Uh, but it will be great for me to have the switches that feel good to me that are in the super slim enclosure that I know are not giving my wrist strain. And to not have to do all kinds of, like, I know that every day I spend a lot of time, like, accidentally hitting the wrong modifier keys to do page up, page down, this, that, the other thing, like, function, option, shift, all that. So it's going to be a uh, big improvement for me. Hooray for bringing back old desktop keyboard uh, designs from, from the past, especially those arrow keys. Can't wait. Another cool piece of hardware is the to be released at the end of the year iMac Pro. It's you know on the inside it's incredible that they've crammed all these professional level uh chips, memory and you know able to control all the heat, but I think that uh the even bigger draw for the iMac Pro hardware is its space gray finish. And it's not just the iMac Pro uh unit, but its peripherals whether you want a mouse or a trackpad, and of course this new extended Magic Keyboard, those are also coming in space gray. And I think it's also come out that they will not be um, available to purchase separately. You're going to only get them with the iMac Pro. Oh, those things are going to be going on eBay for like $400. And this isn't uh, like a very close tie-in to something from the classic Mac, but it did remind me of the Apple Pro mouse and the Apple Pro keyboard, which came out at the uh, summer event in 2000. So this is right in the middle of the iMac G3 era, where up until this point, Apple was shipping a bunch of fruit-flavored iMacs that each got their own uh, similarly fruit-colored puck mouse and like a keyboard that was kind of in between (laughs) the two Magic keyboards because it had a numpad, but it didn't have the function or full arrow keys in the middle. And these were USB keyboards that were also shipping in like a Blueberry with the G3 tower or a Graphite with the first G4 towers. And I think Apple realized 
not only that the puck mouse was atrocious and they needed to ship something a lot better, but also that uh, professionals buying these tower, the pro Mac lines needed uh, more keys like Ed, you were just talking about uh, in addition to the, the, a much better mouse. So these pro keyboards was, it was an extended USB keyboard and uh, the pro mouse was the kind of one button optical black mouse and the fact that those at that event, they're like, all our iMacs are going to come with this, regardless of the color. The G4 Cube, which came out at that event, it's going to come with these. And uh, the the new G4 Towers are going to come with these. And the way that those looked uh, just reminded me of the way that the iMac Pro's new darker uh, keyboard and mouse looked as well. Also around that era, in like 2003, there was the Apple Pro Keyboard which was their extended version at the time. And that came in the same layout, the full extended layout in USB keyboard in both black and white. Mm, There you go. Uh, But you could buy those on their own. So I think that sums up the things that happened this past week at WWDC that made us think of different technologies and products in Apple's and Next's past lives. Uh, it's, It's a lot of fun to see some of this stuff that we really love coming back and getting another time through the cycle and get getting real improvements for, you know, the iPad is the future of computing. This, this is it. The, the future is now, finally. Uh, so it's a little bit happier, for sure, to go back through these things and say, like, this is what inspired these cool new products, as opposed to last year where we said, these are all the things of the past that are no more. Let's, you know have a funeral for OS 9, that kind of thing. <laughs> so if we missed anything, any of the uh, inspirations of Apple's latest and greatest products, of course, let us know. You can get in touch with us either by going to our website. We have a contact form there. The website is simplebeep.com. Or, of course, we are all the time on Twitter at simple underscore beep. We are also individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at E. Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.